Are we carrying any questions from last week? You were talking about um, things starting from the causal world and coming down, and that makes sense. But I guess I, I didn't understand the examples clearly enough. So I made a little note. I don't know if there's anything you can say, but... And maybe my saying it is not very clear either. What you wanted me to review is what I meant by causal astral and material manifestation. Is that what you were asking? But I just remember when I left here, I thought, I didn't get it clearly enough. Okay. I, I, without my being able to remember what I was talking about last week, so I just have to put it in. Okay. Because um, I do my best to forget. Uh, I know I'd been thinking a lot about how by the time something materializes on the astral, on the physical plane, that a tremendous amount of divine energy has already gone into bringing it into focus and I also talked about how therefore Swami also said when we even when we try to evaluate when you judge yourself he said which I don't recommend by the time you can identify a characteristic we are a force of energy and motion so by the time you can identify a characteristic you're already going past it and that was that was part of what I was saying the other part was everything in this world starts as an idea, then energy is applied to that idea, and then finally it manifests itself. And I use the example of a building, an architect, or someone has an idea, they draw a blueprint, then people put energy into the blueprint, then suddenly you have something. And nothing can manifest without all three of those levels. But the idea level is where everything has to begin from. And in our thinking, because the material world is more visible to us than the more subtle worlds, we tend to think that everything is caused from its manifestation, whereas in fact it's more like an inverted pyramid, that there's much more power on the subtle levels that gradually get d- condensed down into this very sm- the small point of the pyramid, which is the material world. And we struggle so much with the material world but the real force that we're working with is consciousness is more subtle and energy. That's why I'll use an example. In, in Swamiji, when he was developing Ananda in the early years, through the 70s and the 80s, especially when there was a lot of confusion within our first community as to who, what we were doing, and self-definition wasn't clear. And Swamiji knew what we were doing. And these people over here you know, we're building their log cabins and making their uh, granola and innovating the way they related to each other and so on. But it was all on the material plane, so to speak. And he just kind of let them do whatever they wanted. And he was over here with the, the group of people who were really in tune with him on a level of consciousness. And he was developing our consciousness. Because he knew that if he developed our consciousness properly then everything that eventually came through us would manifest correctly. Whereas these people were over here just building things, and he knew that it really didn't make much difference what they built, built because if he got the energy right and the attitude right, then everything would manifest properly. Does that, make, does that help? It's a very important thing to understand, also when we're working with ourselves. It, it, the way it translates is... Um, one of the cardinal principles of Ananda is where there is Dharma, there is victory. Dharma means that action which leads to higher consciousness. 
I mean, that's a more expanded definition of the word dharma. So if we are taking those actions which lead to higher consciousness, then everything will work out in the end. It's, it's short, where there is dharma, there is victory. So that means a lot of times, even if we don't know what we're doing, I mean, we don't know where we're going. There's two ways that I, th- I think about this. Even if the results of our action are not going to be apparent, or even if we think that, that if we behave in a, in a way that is in, in conformance with dharma, it's not going to work out. The fact of the matter is, if we don't, it won't work out. But if we behave in a dharmic way, we are setting the right causes in motion. We are adhering to the right idea, we are putting out the right energy, and the result will be fine. If not immediately, then eventually. Even if eventually means, if not in this incarnation, in the next one. Because when we leave this world, nothing material goes with us, but our astral and causal realities go with us. So if those astral and causal realities are in line, then we leave this world in the right vibration, and that energy will cause us to manifest eventually another physical body in conformance with the refinement of that. Whereas if we just try to make it work here, but compromise our dharma in doing so, we may get a little something here, but by the time you have it here, it's already going past you. Because then some new force is coming in. What is All right. So we finished that. Where there's dharma, there's victory. There was another part of it. Oh, the other part of it was what I, I myself called um, doing your dharma in a vacuum, which means something to me, which I'll explain to you, which means sometimes you really don't know how something's going to work out, and you really don't have any access to making it work out. So uh, that's the vacuum, where there's, you, you don't know what the results are going to be or anything, but if you just keep doing what you know to be the most honorable, most uplifting thing that you can do, even if it's in a vacuum of, of other events, that's still the best choice. And, uh, and sometimes you just, you change energy, you change ideas, and then you gradually change the way it manifests also. I know uh, Haridas, who always had a very amusing way of going about, has a very, very entertaining way of going about the spiritual path, but also deep. Many years ago, he and uh, Vijay were in Sacramento and they were trying to start an Ananda Center there. This was like in the, when would this have been? The very late 70s. And they didn't have very much money and they had a, 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 a two or three bedroom house in Sacramento and they converted the garage into a temple. You know, Master called his temples the churches of all religion. Well, that was the garage of all religions. And they just threw a pretty cloth over the washer and dryer and they would have their services in there. I mean, actually, garages are big, useful rooms. So that's where they had the garage of all religions. And, uh, but they were very short of money. Fortunately, their landlord was very sympathetic. So when it would come time for the rent to do, Haridas would call the landlord and ask the landlord to start praying for them. <laughs> and it, it worked. They managed to pay the rent. But every once in a while, they would have yard sales or something like that to try to get money. And, and, and you know, they'd just, you'd just be sitting out there on, on your driveway in front of the garage of all religions with all this whatever it is out there. I don't know where they'd get the stuff. And, and whenever there weren't very many customers coming or anything like that, Haridas would pop up and say, time to rearrange the merchandise. And he would just move everything on this side to this side and everything to this side on this side, and invariably customers would come. You know, it was just like there was no energy to put out, so he just put out energy. In the, uh, 
store that we had in uh, Nevada City, we Ananda Village had in Nevada City, it was called Mountain Song, and it was a b- beautiful women's clothes and uh, gifts and so on like that. And but, but they they knew if things weren't selling, or if their business was slow, they would rearrange the merchandise. They would just polish everything up and and you know spiff it, spiff it, and like this. And then customers would come in. It wasn't like the same customers would see something and buy it, but more customers would come in. That's sort of like doing your duty in a vacuum. Instead of just sitting there, you start creating a cause. You manifest some creative energy, and that creates a cause down. And I've certainly found in my life many times, when I haven't known what to do, or when I haven't had a logical action, I just find the most uplifted thing that I can do in the context and just move forward with it. Invariably it works until you get the, you have a lot of confidence. And that's a way of sort of understanding where things come from. So Swami built Ananda by building people, building the consciousness of people, and then everything worked from that. Does that help? Okay, any other comments or questions before we move on? It's, these are, you know, there's a lot of ideas on the spiritual path. I was talking to someone recently and I was saying, you know, I have an intellectual bend. I've always had it. I'm not a scholar. I've, I was good in school, but I never, I, I could never relate to academia at all. And in fact, I actually fall asleep in libraries. <laughs> I mean, as a child, I would go and get lots of books out. But as an adult, when I would try to go, I never, I never graduated from college. I didn't go to college more than one year, so I never really had to study. I never really had to study. And... But I go into libraries and I, I get pretty sleepy almost immediately. And I, back, I virtually pass out in a law library. I mean, almost immediately. It's like there's just some, you know, like incarnations of having done this before just completely get to me. Almost immediately. Because we had, uh, Ananda had litigation for more than a decade. So from time to time I'd have to wander into a li- law library. And then I would usually just crawl out before I completely went unconscious. But finishing that... Um, uh, let's see now where, where was I talking about oh just a second let's see oh intellectuality so I'm, I have an intellectual bend and I love words and I love ideas it's just the way I've always been um, but I'm not intellectual I'm, I'm incredibly pra- practical I don't I really don't like ideas for their own sake I like practical ideas but um, on the spiritual path, the mind is a very helpful tool. And, and having a clear mind is extraordinarily helpful on the spiritual path, especially to get, get fundamental principles clearly in mind. You don't have to be able to spin words like I do at all. But you just have to understand the law of karma is always fair. You know, the vrittis in my spine distract me from my intention. The devil made me do it. (laughs) Meaning that there's two forces at work here. So that when the emotions begin to whip us around like in a washing machine, we we have a, a, a peg that we can hang on to. Because if we haven't put out the energy to develop some clarity of mind then the, your, our feelings will just start spinning our head and we, and we won't know 
what we're doing. You know, I, um, you know, I, I have at different times in my life write things on the wall and put post-its on the wall. And whenever I can get, whenever I can distill a big idea into a little phrase, like, well, like where there's dharma, there's victory, and doing your dharma in a vacuum. And I am a sincere devotee. This is what is happening to me. This must be what happens to sincere devotees. <laughs> that was one of my most useful mantras for about 15 years. It's like, and you see, there's a lot of philosophy behind that. It's that I am part of God, that God loves me, that, you know, it's going to work out, that I don't have to feel unworthy. I mean, you can see a thousand things. I am a sincere devotee. This is what's happening to me. This must be what happens to sincere devotees. You get just a few ideas in your head, and even just causal astral material. Okay, it's a mess on the material level. Let me see if I can back up a little and start generating energy in a new way. I was, uh, I was thinking recently about a very difficult experience I had when I first really tried seriously to write, which was now about 15 years ago. And for several years, I just couldn't do anything. And gradually I came to understand that I myself had been a very critical and a very judgmental person, especially about bad writing. <laughs> Not that I could do good writing, but I could tell what was bad writing, but I was very unsympathetic to people's efforts. And I didn't mean to be unkind. It was all, if you want to go into all the psychology, it was obviously self-protective. There were all these other reasons, blah, blah, blah. But as a result, I had set up a universe in which bad writing was not allowed, and therefore I couldn't write at all. Because, of course, your first draft is never that good. So I would, I, but it was years, it was a couple of years at the end of which I had made a tremendous effort to write a book and had nothing, really, literally nothing. I don't, I did nothing. And I said to Swamiji, you know, spiritually, this has been an absolutely terrific period. In terms of writing this book, it's been an absolute disaster. But quite apart from that, because all my karma has come home to roost. And you know, I've just been eaten alive by all the bad energy I ever put out. And this is good to get this done. You know, it was nice to get the boomerang to come home because I began to get it. And whoa, that was a big incentive to change on the causal level, change the ideas that I was putting out. But you know, there was nothing else to do at that point except change on the causal level. And I had the principle, karma's always fair. You know, if I'm setting, if I'm experiencing this, I must have done something to set it up. You know, the, the reasoning behind it is can get subtle, but it's very good when you're not being tortured particularly to use your your moments of freedom between your moments of tension to get the principles really straight. Practice when it's easier, so that when you get really pressed, even if you're suffering, you don't rebel, which is really different. Because once you start rebelling, then you're trying to find a universe that doesn't exist and you're really in trouble. Yeah. I may have told you that um, I have a lot of challenges, physically and otherwise, what I've been trying to say lately is, Master, what do you want me to learn from this? Is that sort of... That was the prayer that I, I, I developed for my parents in the last years of their lives. 
Um, I was very anxious about their experiences and I was projecting upon to them a great deal of things that they were not experiencing. I was imagining. It was a very weird thing. Instead of, I was imagining that it's like if, if from where I stand right now, I, I was in some movie plot and I woke up in the morning and my mother and I or my father and I had changed bodies and I was suddenly living in the body that they were living in without enter, any intervening experience. I imagined how I would feel if between today and the next minute my consciousness flipped into their, their reality. And so as a consequence, I was very agitated a lot about, you know, the fact that they were aging and eventually dying from aging. Um, but then I finally realized that it was their karma. And I don't mean that in an unsympathetic way, but it was the natural progression of everything that they had done prior to that. And so therefore, it was natural and familiar to them. I mean, it didn't mean that they were enjoying it always, but they weren't freaked out because what I was imagining was so outside of their reality. Do you understand what I mean? I mean, what they were experiencing was so outside of my reality because I've just lived an entirely different life. So even when I'm their age, even if I become subject to the same debilitating conditions that affected them, my mother had Parkinson's and by the end my father's mind wasn't completely normal, I would experience it differently because I'm such a different person. It's unlikely that I would have that experience exactly like that, but even if I did, I would just, it would just be completely different for me. And I would know that it was just the natural next step in my evolution. And I realized how profoundly I was disrespecting my parents. Profoundly. Because I didn't give them credit for being able to live their own lives. Or, to be, or giving them any dignity to face their own karma. I was just panicked, running around, trying to make it something else. Which they did not appreciate. Did not create harmony between us to have me rush in and try to run their lives. You can imagine, parents are not usually keen on that. You know, I mean, they appreciated my goodwill, but they did not appreciate my point of view. Um, so, the end point of that is, I realized, well, th if this is their karma, that means they have something to learn here. And why would I not want them to learn it? You know, we also, we also get this really strange idea, speaking both of ourselves and of them. If the purpose of life is to work out our karma and to change our consciousness through the experiences that we have, and the experiences that we have are perfectly designed to teach us what we don't know, which is why we, we struggle, because we are having to learn something that we don't already know, why would I want to deprive someone of that opportunity? You know, you just have to stop and actually think for a minute. Is that really loving someone? To want them to not have to learn what they, not get the chance to learn what they have to learn, merely because it's a little difficult? That's like saying, oh, well, honey, you really don't have to learn to read. You know, I know it's a lot of trouble. You don't really have to go to school. You know, you don't really have to control your temper. You, don't, you can just keep breaking your dolls. I'll keep buying you new ones. I mean, it doesn't help anyone to not allow a person to, to experience their own karma and the consequences of it and grow beyond it. So, but I was still not at ease because it was, you know, it was a long cycle and challenging so my prayer became, Divine Mother, 
whatever it is you're trying to teach these people, you also need to give them the receptivity, the humility, the devotion, and the wisdom to learn it. And so instead of asking for a short circuit on what they needed, I just asked God to help them learn it. And that was, it just like everything changed. My relationship to my parents, their attitude toward me, my sense of ease. And then when things happen, would happen, I would just think, okay, Master, you're making this happen, you do something with it. You know, if this is what's happening. And I'll, I'll tell you the last of this, which some of you have heard before, but my mother had Parkinson's, and, and I remember when she got ill, my father told me, because he looked at it, that the end of Parkinson's, for some people, is it goes to your brain, which becomes a very different story. So my mother had the disease for 15 years. She was feisty. She actually said to me like this, I hate to admit it, she said, but this disease has been the making of me. (laughs) Because she was spoiled and a little willful. And, but uh, once that, once she had to start fighting against that, she became someone I'd never seen before. And when was that bad karma? You know, it was the making of her. And she herself petulantly admitted that, you know, because she didn't have the space anymore to be a little spoiled like she had been prior to that. But uh, just at the end, she started having seizures. I mean, just at the end, because literally, you'll, I'll tell you in a moment, she started, she had a few, it was, it was about two weeks, it was, I, and I was there, and she had, we had to kick her to the hospital because she had a seizure. But she'd only had the first one two weeks prior. This is after 15 years. And I'm sitting with her in the emergency room, and by now, she's pretty small. And she's just this tiny little, tiny little bump in the sheet, sort of all curled up. And they probably gave her some drugs because she was pretty passed out. And I, was, I remember it as a very big room with all these curtains around us. And I looked at her and I, I said, Master, I said, this will not do. I said, this is not going to work for her to have to go through this. I said, I've been very patient up until now, and she's been very good, but this is not acceptable. And I just said, and forgive me, I have a very easy attitude toward death. You have got to get her out of this body. And I, I, uh, I called in my chips. <laughs> I said, and I lined up all the masters in the room like this, and I said, I've done a lot for you guys, so I'm asking a favor here. <laughs> and uh, less than two weeks later, she died. She went home, she had, back where she was staying, she had, I think, I think two weeks later she had a seizure, they took her to the hospital, and I, I had just left for Europe. My sister calls me, I was in Rome. She said, Mom died this morning. And my response was, good for her. I mean, it was, I was just like, good for her, she did it. She just let it go when it was time to let go. And, but I really feel that Master came and got her. And I think the reason I was able to pray like that and get a result was because I accepted what was happening on a very deep level. So I felt like God and I were working together. I wasn't working against his plan. I didn't enjoy what was happening to them, but I wasn't working against his plan. That's what gives you power. If we pray for things that are not in God's plan, it's nothing he can do about it. It's like saying, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to jump off of the stair and I'm going to fly to the back of the room. And you can, like, affirm all you want, but it's not, it's, it's contrary to the law for you to be able to do that. 
or you have to have a consciousness different than just an affirmation. But when you start cooperating with what God wants for you, then he can help you. Because if you say, I want it to be different, I want to get off easy, I want to get wise without effort, I don't want to have to pay back my karma, I just want to be able to say and then just be free. You know, why can't I just be free? I just want to be free. I so want to be free. When, 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 we felt, when Swami first built his dome and at Ayodhya, uh, what is now Crystal Hermitage, which is now the living room, used to be just one dome. And it was covered with this, uh, you know, th- we were able to just nail things together back there with no officials, no permits, no rules. So he built this dome and, let's see, I can't remember how it was first done. But, some, but somebody came over and sprayed it with this big sort of foam. So it was, we b- built the frame and then they sprayed it with this foam. The problem was that, that the, a geodesic dome, the way it's built, it, it moves, it expands and contracts. So it kept expanding and contracting against this plastic coating. So it created countless f- cracks in the plastic coating. And it's, it rained 60 inches a year all within six months. during those times. So we had torrential rains a great deal of the time. And the the dome just leaked like a sieve. You know, the water just poured into it. And at that time, there was no room underneath the the dome. But there was this big uh, piece of plywood, a four-by-eight piece of plywood with handles that you lifted up and you could walk under the house down this little stairway where all the firewood was kept. So you'd lift up this big hole in the living room and bring the firewood up and fill the wood stove. But so when it would rain, Swami would lift up that lid and we would literally sweep the water out because it would just come in so... We just had a a wood floor and we'd just sweep the water out. You know, I'd come home and he'd be sweeping the water out. I'd take the the broom from him and I'd sweep the water out. I mean, it was just crazy. And Swami, because it's very good to make jokes about attitudes that you might otherwise want to have sincerely, at one point Swami said, Lord... I'm so sincere, can't you make the dome stop leaking? <laughs> you know? And we, we would joke a lot about how sincerity doesn't work. You can be as sincere as you want, but there's holes in the dome. It's just going to happen. But a lot of times that's really how we pray. There's just holes. There are karmic holes all over the place. And we say, but I'm so nice, but I'm so tired, but I'm so pretty, but I'm so popular. You know, really, if there's holes in the, in the roof, it's just going to leak. But we joke about it because it's nice to joke about those things. But it was, it was exasperating. It was annoying as could be, but there it was. There were holes in the roof. There's karmic holes in us. We're going to bear the consequences. But if we begin to cooperate, which is where this started, what am I supposed to be learning here? The, I mean, there's several prayers. What am I supposed to be learning? And then the corollary to that is, what am I afraid of? Because discomfort is almost always fear. Because fear is the opposite of love. What am I afraid of? Oh, I can be afraid of lots of things. It's perfectly fine to be afraid of them. It's perfectly fine to be completely honest. This is a horrible experience and I really don't know if I can live through this. You know, I'm absolutely at the end of my tether and I just don't know how this is going to go any farther. But thy will not mine be done. That's Jesus' prayer. You know, Lord, let this cup pass from me. If we can possibly avoid this, I'm all for it. But afterwards, if it doesn't change, I guess I'm not done learning, am I? And then he can help you. 
Matthew has a question. Do you want to? Matthew, is my correct? Yeah. Hello. Um, in that context. If you put the microphone a little closer. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. That's good? Yes, thank you. Okay. Hello. Um, in that context, what's the difference between accepting and not caring? Hmm. What's the difference between accepting and not giving a damn, which is not what you said, but not caring is more, more gracious. Um, people think detachment, for example, which is a popular word, means to be indifferent, which is not true. People sometimes think to be spiritual is to be indifferent, which is also not true. Um, to be accepting is not and people think that acceptance means to acquiesce or to become passive. But what we're accepting is we're accepting the reality of the conditions that we have to deal with. And that, that's what the word acceptance actually means. It doesn't mean that you accept that these conditions must endure forever. But if, you, if you're not willing to actually deal with what's really happening, then you're always working at the, at the wrong end of the stick of the wrong end of the situation. It's the most important thing on the spiritual path is to be able to see things as they are and not be afraid of how they really are. And that means to see our own limitations and simultaneously to see our own strengths, to understand what self-realization really means, to understand how committed I really am. And then, because once we know where we stand, we can at least begin to work with the karma as it's really happening. Like, well, my prayer about my parents was the karma as it was really happening. What I really wanted for them was that they could learn whatever they were supposed to learn. I was running around trying to somehow obliterate the conditions they were dealing with by managing their lives in such a way that it wouldn't happen. That was just not accepting reality. Um, Swami also says the difference between wishful thinking and positive thinking. Wishful thinking, he says, if you're, is if you're going to invade a country and you go in with ten soldiers hoping the army will be on vacation when you come in. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's just being a dreamer. So a lot of times when people, I mean, and not caring, uh, we, we get into other aspects of this. There's... You know, I mentioned causal, astral, and material. There's another trio that is really important, which is everything in creation is, is made out of three kinds of energy, which is tamasic, sattvic, and... I mean, tamasic, rajasic, and sattvic. Tamasic is downward pulling and contractive. Rajasic is just energy, which it doesn't necessarily... Like, six-year-olds have a lot of rajasic energy. It doesn't necessarily go anywhere. They just keep running around. America has a lot of rajasic energy. It doesn't really go into Americans. They just run around and do stuff. And sattvic energy is expansive, upward-moving energy. And the pr progress of, an ind of our individual consciousness can also be understood in terms of tamasic, rajasic, and sattvic. Tamasic is just downward pulling and dull. And... Rajasic, at least, is putting out energy, so it's, it's up from just downward pulling and dull. And sattvic is to be very attuned and to do things that lift us. And at all times, the real struggle within us is to overcome tamasic energy with rajasic energy and then refine that rajasic energy to be sattvic energy. 
So not caring is a tamasic quality because not caring means I don't have to put out any energy. I can just sit over here and pretend that I'm not part of a greater reality and I can just do whatever I want. And sattvic energy and tamasic energy can often look the same because someone who's sitting in a drunken stupor doing nothing and not relating to the world can look like someone who's sitting in cosmic consciousness who's out of his body and is all over creation, but they can look the same. So people will talk about being detached and you know, not, not getting too involved, but most of the time when people do that, they are not actually transcending, they are hiding from. Because the energy required to, fi- to accept and face into that reality and deal with it is more than they want to do. And, but you have to go from tamasic through energy to be able to transcend it. So that's the other part of it. You ask yourself, why am I doing this? Why am I pretending not to care? And you know, it gets very complicated inside of us because we get really bad habits over many lifetimes. And so then we, we ourselves can't tell where it's coming from. I remember Swamiji commented about such and so person, he said, seems more detached Swami said, than he himself was, but they're actually just less committed, was his word. (laughs) Committed, you know, really committed to their own salvation, committed to uplifting the world, because, but if you're committed in a sattvic way, you're doing it for God. But nonetheless, then you're very, that's why it looks different. Swami was exceedingly committed. He never did anything without 100% of his energy. He never did anything without 100% of his energy. Because he did never wanted to be tamasic, so he used rajasic energy to become sattvic. Does that make sense? Very good question, an extremely important one. And we don't, as I started to say, I did say, and I'll repeat it just one more time, you have to be very attentive because we don't always know. You know, I, I've been extremely impressed by how many parts of myself have been hidden from me. And how, and how really startling it is sometimes to realize things about myself. And I've, I've been pretty serious for a really long time. You know, and then yesterday and the day before, it's like, wow, I really didn't know that. And now I do. Once I, I thought I would have overcome a real antagonistic relationship I had with someone, I thought I'd transcended it and I had really just been spared their company. (laughs) And when I was back in their company, it took me about 30 minutes to be about as annoyed as I had ever been. I was very upset about it. And I was crying, and Swami said, well, he said, you weren't putting out any energy to overcome it because you thought you were free. He said, now you know, so you can get back to work. And he was just so cheerful about it. I was all just in pieces. But when I calmed down enough to think about it, I said, well, he was absolutely right. I just, I have to put out more energy. And that was annoying to me. You know, <laughs> it was really annoying. I just wanted to be free without the effort. There was a man who used to sit in these classes. He's moved to another community now. And I've known him for 30 or years. He asked me many, many questions. And gradually I began to realize that no matter how he phrased it, it was always the same question. Isn't there an easier way? do you know any shortcuts that you haven't told us yet? And it, it got, I mean, at first I used to answer what he actually asked, and then I would just, 
point out to him that here we are again. You're asking the same question, aren't you? Golly, I guess I am. <laughs> Believe me, if I knew him, I'd tell you. This one is it. But acceptance is one of them. Acceptance that this is really what it is. Okay. I haven't read a paragraph yet. Am I good? Go ahead, Matthew. Okay, I just want to follow up on that. Matthew um, is visiting us for only a week, so he gets the microphone as long as he wants it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, mm-hmm. So, as you mentioned, being practical. Yeah, practical is real important. Once you accept it. Accept that it's there. Accept that it's there. Accept reality. Practically speaking, Uh there is nothing you can do to help that person through his or her karma. Oh, you can do a tremendous amount to help a person through their karma. Just think how much it means to have somebody who believes in you. Just think how much it means to have somebody praying for you, although you, you have to experience that really to know it. Think what it means to have somebody put their arms around you and say, I know you can do it. Or... I understand. I mean, just think about that. Tremendous amount of what we suffer from is loneliness. I mean, a a, a lot of the what am I afraid of comes down to loneliness. And, I mean, other people can alleviate that loneliness only to a certain extent. There's an existential isolation that no amount of good company can ever overcome. But good company can go a long way. Yeah. But you want to help them in the right way, you see. And that's what I learned with my parents. I want to help you to win. I want to help you to victory. I don't want to help you to escape and then just have to face this later. You know, I, in my position here, I have had the what I consider to be the extraordinary privilege of being present at, at an, an, on a number of occasions when people have died, left their bodies. And sometimes I'm in a situation where everybody in the room, we're all on the same team, we all understand things in the same way. And at other times I've been the only one or one of the only ones in the room who had a picture of reality that, that, that made me not afraid that this person was going to die. Um, and I've been really impressed how just one person who is not afraid can change the whole weather in a whole room. So if you can, anywhere in your life, if you can be even half afraid when everybody else is fully afraid, and I don't just mean death, because what we're always afraid of is having to learn the lesson that it's going to hurt while I learn the lesson. But faith in God tells you it's okay. It's going to come out okay. Any, any kind of confidence that you can exude, especially confidence that comes from something bigger, is a gift that is beyond measure. And I've been on the receiving end of it, too. It's not only that I've been on the giving end of it. I've been on the receiving end of it. It's everything. I'm, in fact, actually speaking about my writing experience. What actually finally turned me in the right direction was very funny. I realized that in my vast circle of friends, of which I have a great many because of the community I've lived in so long, including Swami Kriyananda, in my vast circle of friends, many of whom are angels, most of whom, all of whom are angels, many of whom are going to be liberated and are going to just be helping us all from, I mean, they're just great souls. 
They all thought I could do it. I was the only one in my vast circle of friends who was convinced that I couldn't write what I needed to write. And they just finally, I just kind of finally did the math one day. What are the chances that they're all wrong? These people who I know to be wise and capable, how could they all be wrong? And in this whole vast group, I'm the only one who understands it. And I thought, something is wrong with this picture. And I realized, I'm probably wrong. And it really, it just broke what was really tremendous egotism, reverse egotism, but tremendous, isolated, self-centered, exaggerated self-concern, which is the definition of ego. I wasn't puffing myself up, I was pounding myself down, but I was still telling a lie. It didn't really matter which side of it. And I realized that they probably weren't liars, it was probably me. And that just, you know, because all of a sudden, oh, I was wrong, I can do this. It wasn't that it was easy or anything like that, but it, it just turned it. So don't ever, ever, ever underestimate, even if there's absolutely nothing you can do externally. Even if the person won't let you say it to them out loud, you can say it from a far distance and the thought will still come in. And by the corollary of that is every, every negative you thought, thought you put out also is received. So we can be, well, we can change the planet, actually. And thank God we are. <laughs> Otherwise it would be pretty scary to live here, wouldn't it? kind of scary anyway, but it's all right. Matthew, do you have any more? Okay. (laughs) So, I am now going to finish reading. This is how we've gotten 82 classes out of this book. Number 308, (laughs) which I've been reading for three weeks. I'll now finish reading it. And I have to just even look and see what we're talking about. Oh, this was, he was talking about Master's Mission. We defined what Master's Mission is. And then he was talking about it's not enough to just want God. We have to also want to help others to want God. And this is the summation of that little discussion. Thus, we see that, given all the paragraphs that came before, thus we see that for any real understanding of Master's mission on earth, we must see it in very broad, not in narrow terms, whether monastic or householder. He came literally for the world and sought those also who wanted to help him serve all humanity. Obviously, he sought those above all who wanted enlightenment, but among these sincere seekers, he hoped to find a few who were willing to seek enlightenment not only for themselves, but also for others. Indeed, who thought in terms of universal enlightenment. He hoped to find among those who were seeking God those who would also seek enlightenment for others. Thus he said to me once, Pray to God, reveal thyself that I may give thee to all. That is the highest prayer. Reveal thyself that I may give thee to all. That is the highest prayer. I have already quoted the words he addressed to me. And you mustn't disappoint me, Master said to Swami, when he said, you have a great work to do, and you mustn't disappoint me. And Swamiji, the rest of that, which most of you know, is that Master said, every other man has disappointed me and you mustn't disappoint me. And when Swami had to think about that, he thought, but Master had many great disciples, male disciples. But what he meant was that 
they, they didn't embrace the work the way he felt Swami Kriyananda could embrace the work. And it wasn't even that they should have embraced the work, all of them, some of them should have, but he felt that Swami could and he really wanted him to accept what was being asked of him. And you mustn't disappoint me. Imagine having your guru say that to you. You know, I expect this of you and you mustn't disappoint me. That's why Swami was so driven is the only word I can use. Master's need was for willing workers to aid him with his mission and not those alone who wanted spiritual development for themselves. You know, it's a hard... Swamiji talked a lot about that because it, it's actually a little complicated. Swamiji read Autobiography of a Yogi when he was 22 years old in 1948. He had come to a crisis point in his life where he had realized that seeking God was the answer. But it was 1948, and it wasn't like it was everywhere. It wasn't easy like it is now. So he decided he would become a hermit, and he would go to South America where he could live cheaply, and he was trying to get a, a sh- uh, to go out on a ship so he could earn money and save it and then collect money and then go to South America and live cheaply and try to find God. But he had no idea really how any of this was going to work. He was just determined and desperate. I mean, he'd really reached the end point of possibility. And it was in that state of mind that he was literally compelled to buy the autobiography of a yogi. And he immediately felt Master's presence. And he went home and he read the book in three days and three nights and waited one day and then took a bus from New York to Los Angeles because Yogananda was still alive then. Just went right to him, said, I want to be your disciple and was initiated on the spot. But Swami said, even as he was going across the country, having just read this book, not even having read, met Master yet, He was saying, this is all so wonderful, the whole world needs to know this. And he was just, his his first impulse, long before he really even established himself, was not, I've found my way, now I can go to the cave, now I can be alone, now I can become enlightened. It was, the whole world has to know this. And so, Master wasn't compelling Swami to do something. He was looking at him and understanding who he was and, and where his own power and joy would come from. At the end of his life, Swamiji said, I really, want, I really want to bring everyone in the world to this teaching. He said, I know it's not realistic. He said, but it motivates me. <laughs> and in that context, he also said, and to do that, I suppose I'll have to come back. Meaning, after he finished this lifetime, he was going to have to reincarnate again, even though... He, he had no karma of his own. He would, but he said, because I feel that way, I know I'm going to have to come back. And he just said it very cheerfully, even though he said, I always said I wasn't going to come back, but I guess I'll have to because I want this to happen. And it, people develop in different ways. And you can be serving the world alone in a cave with the upliftment of consciousness that you have. But I'll, I'll put myself in this category. Some of us are highly motivated it's just, it's just the way we're made. And we've been this way for a long time. Or we're, we're teetering on the cusp and this would be helpful to us. You know, to, to, emp- to strengthen our own commitment by constantly sharing that commitment with others. I myself 
credit <clears throat> my undying enthusiasm for the spiritual path, which is now going on quite a few years, by the fact that I've spent almost my entire life, I spent my entire adult life as part of Ananda, and for pretty much from day one, I was in a position where I was telling others about it because I am of that type. I just, I, as soon as I have something I like, I want everyone to know about it. A restaurant, a movie, a book, you know, a consignment store that has nice clothes in it. <laughs> just, you know, anything. A new recipe. I can, I can hardly contain myself. I just have to tell somebody about it. It's the way I'm made. And I've had the privilege, therefore, also, of standing in front of people and, and often being the first one to tell them about self-realization. And so I've gotten to see how incredibly exciting it is and how life-changing and how thrilling it is and how helpful it is. So I never forget because I, I rarely go more than an hour without getting to share my enthusiasm with someone except for the last couple of years when I've had some real seclusions. But even then I was writing and I was writing all this fantastic stuff so that other people could know it. But what it's done for me, whatever it's done for anyone else, is quite incidental to what it's done for me. Because for one, it's incredibly satisfying. And, I, and the other is, I never forget. Because what happens is you have something wonderful in your life and you gradually, it becomes ordinary, you don't remember. But if you're constantly sharing it, the channel is blessed and your enthusiasm is renewed because it's renewed by who you see. And we're going to take a short break because there's more to say, but we've been sitting for an hour and that's long enough. So let's take a break and then I'll finish that thought. <clears throat> I lost my train of thought and I was remembering when Swami would uh, lecture and give classes, y- y- he would he would move your consciousness really somewhere else and you would be I mean, I would say sometimes, depending on his bob and also depending on one's own, it was kind of a joint venture. But sometimes you just feel that was the most amazing class, that was the most amazing Sunday service. You go to Swami, he used to do this to us, he was so mischievous. Oh, Swami, that class was so amazing, was it? What did I say? <laughs> you just be a total blank. <laughs> I mean, you really had no idea what he said. You thought you knew, but as soon as he asked you, you had no idea. And, you know, then sometimes you'd try really hard to remember or you'd see the topic and something, because really it just wasn't, when it really moved you, it wasn't received on that level. It was that your consciousness shifted and that's what you were enjoying, but it was very hard simultaneously to keep a rational picture. But usually, if you held on for a couple of seconds, you could find it. But he, he really enjoyed doing that to us. What did I say? <laughs> well, I myself, during the break, was just doing that because I, I said I wasn't finished and then I had a zero as to what I was going to talk about. But I remember what it is now. We were talking about workers in the field. Um, just a variation on that theme where people can be uh, just unspeakably inspired by what Swami says. Uh, in addition, it, you ask different people what they learn from it, and if they're able to be articulate about it at all, they'll come out with quite contrary Oh, quite statements. contrary. It, as, as a public speaker, you don't really want to know, I promise you. You just, you know, because it's... Sometimes, it, it's, sometimes they come out with things that you never actually even said. But 
But it's not so bad. Well, because um, if we're really exchanging energy, which is, even though only one of us is doing most of the talking, it's, it's a loop of energy. It's, and I believe me, I really know that because I talk so much. I'm very aware of the fact that it's a loop. If there's no, if there's no draw from your side, there's no words from my side. And because we have such wonderful people, and I don't, I don't usually go into environments where I'm not with wonderful people. I can't actually remember ever being anywhere where I didn't enjoy who I was with in this context. Um, it, it always just flows. But what happens is, because we're exchanging energy, everybody, including me, we're moving a deeper and deeper into our center. And so once you're standing at your center, you see what you need to see from your center. And that's one of the reasons why you can't remember what Swami said, because what he said was just a vehicle to shift consciousness. And when our consciousness shifts, we understand what we didn't understand before. And, and by definition, each of us is individual working out our own karma. So then we'll art- someone will articulate what they heard you say, or what we heard Swami say, and it often really has nothing to do with what he actually said, even though we'll remember that he said it. But what happened was we had, a, we had an understanding while he was speaking, and so we assumed it came out of his words. I had an experience, and Swami, when he would, insofar as he ever trained us to speak, which was not on any level that, you know, you would think of being trained. It was entirely vibration consciousness. He would just say, fill the room with your magnetism. Don't just give people ideas, give them master's vibration. That was about 100% of the instruction. (laughs) Because if you do that, then the words will follow. Now, of course, for some reason, I have this capacity, as I often say. It's not actually that I know more. It's that I can articulate every scrap of information that's in my head. So it's, it's I'm articulate, which is really different. Pe- other people can know a lot more, but they just don't have that piece that for some reason was important for me. Karmically, I think it's important, the reason I do all of this. And this is also why, and this is also part of what I was saying. Now I'll get back to the subject. Um, workers in the field. A lot of us have to be workers in the field because we have karma to balance. A master said to Swami Kriyananda, you were eaten up with doubts in past lives. And so, it's, and so Swamiji says, well, because he went through so many incarnations of having so many doubts, he totally understands what people need in order to be able to overcome their doubts and develop faith. And he's very, very patient with people's gradual understanding, and he's very creative at being able to solve it because he's coming out of his own experience. Um, but also you could see if you were thinking about balancing karma insofar as he had any karma to balance, which I don't really think he did, but in the direction of things, if you have created doubt, probably that very enthusiastic personality also created doubt in other people's minds too. Or even if he had the restraint not to be sharing his wrong ideas, he would be radiating those wrong ideas. And so it's, it, it's like it's, it pushes the pendulum to one side of delusion that has to be balanced out by fi- filling the world with wisdom. 
And Rajasi Janakananda, who was Master's most advanced disciple, he hardly ever talked, and he ran a little center in St. Louis for a while, and then Master just told him to close it. And Sister Gyanamata, who was brilliant and wise, she, she never did any teaching at all either, because they just didn't need to. There was not, no karma to balance. Both of them served, but you can also serve with your consciousness, and both of them were utterly dedicated to Master's work. They were deep workers in the field, when Master was walking along the beach, uh, the cliff at Encinitas where the ashram was, and Rajasi was there and he was meditating, and, and Master was walking by and he was talking with whoever he was with, and then he said, shh, like this. So we mustn't disturb him. And then he said, you have no idea what great blessings are drawn to this work when even one person goes as deep as he does. So he was tremendously serving by his consciousness. He also earned money, huge amounts of money, and gave it to Master. But... So it's also, and that's why Swami, uh, Master, put that responsibility on Swami because it was karmically appropriate for him to do that. Um, and I don't really know if it's true or not, but I believe that I have persuaded people of lots of wrong things in the past. A psychic told me, and I actually don't actually believe it, but it's apocryphal. She said, I helped start the French Revolution. <laughs> Whether it's actually literally true or not, I don't know. But I could have. <laughs> you know, just because if I'm convinced of something, I want everyone to know it. And because I believe this capacity to articulate has been there for a while. So it occurred to me one day that, that the day is going to come when I get to stop talking. But it's not today and it's not tomorrow. And I probably, I doubt if it will be while I'm still in this body but there's, I could, I could, I suddenly occurred to me there's a karmic balancing going on here, where having persuaded people to wrong ideas, I now have to persuade them to right ideas. But at some point, I'll get back to zero. You know, and at that point, it will change in one way or another. Who knows what will happen? It's really not. I don't really care. But that, that's what we're all working with. Now, there's a whole other part of it, though, which is selfless service is the fastest way to overcome the ego. And reciprocity is essential to any love relationship. And if we only take but don't give, we never have what we want. So there's many levels in which all of those principles are in place. Um, if we are disciples, which most of you are, but not all of you, if you have taken a, a vow of discipleship, you know, to give your life to this path, and if the ideal relationship between guru and disciple is that of friendship, think about what Jesus says in the Bible. It's somewhere in the last days of his life, and he's walking along with his um, disciples there. And he says, you call me master, but I call you friend. And he says, a servant will do his master's bidding, but a servant never embraces as his own the master's reality. I mean, he uses other words. But that which belongs to the master never belongs to the servant. But friends, you know, live on equal terms and work to shoulder to shoulder. So when he was saying that to his disciples, he wasn't flattering them. He was instructing them. What is your proper relationship to me? You call me master, and that allows you to be the passive servant. I call you friend which demands that you stand with me, that which I do ye shall do in greater things. I mean, words like that from Jesus 
were not compliments. They were commissions, which is very, very different. He was instructing them and telling them what their duty was as disciples. He wasn't saying, oh, you're so terrific, you're going to be as big as me. I mean, that's not at all what he meant. He meant you must, you must come to that level. And the reason is because, coming back to what Matthew, what I was saying to Matthew is, tamasic, rajasic, sattvic. It's for our own sake. We have to, we have to find a way to overcome our resistance, to overcome our low energy, to put out dynamic energy and eventually to refine that energy. And we need ways to do that in which we're motivated. And so the other part of being the friend of Master, to be a disciple who is a friend, I've told this story several times, but it it, it was my beginning experience. It was just the beginning of it. Um, Because I had a certain detachment from the world, which was basically just a an inability to relate to the world, which was very conveniently described as transcendence. Um, And it was also, to be fair to myself, I was born a yogi, and mm, it was pretty mystifying to me what I was supposed to do here until I discovered the spiritual path, because it didn't look very interesting or very satisfying. But a lot of my detachment was just that I, I was, it was paralysis, just kind of an internal anxiety that prevented me from moving. Um, but also, once I got onto the spiritual path, because I was very intellectual, I became enamored a lot of, of a lot of these ideas. It's only a dream, it doesn't really matter, self-realization is the only goal. I mean, it, was, it, it dovetailed very nicely with my psychological weaknesses to, to put those two things together. I was still practical and not really stupid, but it still was like that. And my entire relationship when I began, my, my huge motivating factor when I came to Ananda was the presence of Swami Kriyananda, whom I recognized as someone who could really teach me. It's probable that I may have met, it's possible that I may have met other people in my life before meeting him who could have taught me, but I didn't recognize it. If, if it was so, I didn't know it. And I was simultaneously aware of the fact that even though I was able to appear competent, that in fact I didn't have any idea what I was doing, which made me very, very scared. And nobody could teach me because nobody seemed to know what I wanted to know. I, I went to Stanford for one year and the professors were smart, but they weren't wise. And it was just almost immediately obvious to me that they weren't wise. And it was quite disturbing because I didn't know where you went after that. You know, you've, you've, I've been admitted, and I was admitted because <laughs> in those days they had personal interviews, and so I talked myself in. <laughs> I talked myself into pretty much everything I ever did. Um, I'm going to tell you, okay, now where am I? I'm talking about Stanford Wisdom Swami. There's this movie, I don't know whether it was the Ferris Bueller movie or it was the movie Clueless. It was one of those teenager movies. And so one of the characters is this marvelous, you know, teenage girl. She's a high school student in the movie. And uh, I think her mother died when she was young, so she lives alone with her father in this lavish home because he's a very powerful attorney 
big time lawyer, makes lots of money as a lawyer, and he's you know raised her to be his clone in a happy way. It's a very happy movie. So she gets her grades, but her grades aren't as high as she wants them to be, so she systematically goes to all her teachers and, and talks them into raising her grades. So when she goes home and shows her father her report card, she tells him that, you know, she talked her teachers into all these grades. He said, I couldn't be prouder than if, you've a- than if you'd actually earned them. <laughs> So nonetheless, I talked myself into Stanford, but, but they weren't wise. And I just, I was beside myself, so I basically, you know, it was 1965, 1965. And you know, the Grateful Dead were just starting, Ken Kesey was here. I mean, it was a really fun time to be in this area, and I had a lot of fun. I didn't go to school much, but I had a lot of fun. And... Uh, so when I finally saw Swami, it was like it was no problem for me to think that nothing mattered except just learning from him. So I came to Ananda and I was really happy that there was a community. I was really happy that there was a retreat because even though with that attitude, I had this enthusiasm and I, the idea that not only would I be living in this ashram environment, but new people would be coming in and I could be telling them all the time about how wonderful this is because if I can't talk, I think I'll die. So anyway, I'd like this. But nonetheless, I really didn't care about any of it. You know, just that, your phrase, I just didn't care. It's just like, you know, so what kind of energy. What it benef- I, I cared because it was to my benefit, but I didn't care about it. So I became involved in Swami's life. I started being his secretary. I often cooked for him. I saw him every day. You know, just, it was, and I wasn't the only one, but there was a crowd of us and I was, he was my life. And Ananda was, he was building this community. He was working day and night, writing books, earning money, making plans, training people. And we were scratching this community out of this, you know, barren land, just pulling it up, you know, rock by rock. Tremendous amount of work, which to me was all just fun. But I really didn't care. Just didn't make any difference to me. I was just there for what I was getting. And I was in the back of the car, I think he drove his own car in those days, or maybe my friend Saba was driving, but we were driving through the community over this really rutted road. And I remember I was looking out the window like this and thinking, because pretty much everything I was looking at hadn't been there before, and I knew how it got there because we had worked to put it there, and he had worked really hard to put it there. And I thought to myself, my gosh, what tremendous effort has gone into every square inch of making this community happen. And I knew because I saw Swami every day how he worked against obstacles and opposition and betrayal and financial woes and uh, health challenges and just sheer exhaustion and, you know, everything that you would have to work against to move at something as big as he was moving. And I was appreciating how, what a tremendous friend he was to me like I'd never even imagined. And then it crossed my mind that he was giving his life's blood for this and on a very real level I didn't give a damn. And, and it was another one of those, wow, there is something really wrong with this picture. First, because he was my spiritual teacher and he really cared about this project. 
And I was holding this superior spiritual position of not caring about the project. It was another one of those moments, like, who has a better chance of being wrong? You know, like, what are the odds that he's got it wrong and that I have it right? Not very good. You know, so that crossed my mind first. Then the second thing that crossed my mind is, what an ungrateful wretch I am. You know, here he is pouring his life's blood out to make this community that I'm really enjoying, and I'm just, you know, I'm not working. I'm just very happy for him to work for me. And and he's giving me a life that I've desperately wanted. And yeah, I cook him I cook him dinner and I make some tea and you know, I type his manuscript, but what is really important to him? What is really important to him is his commission from Master as he sees it. And I thought, this is not friendship. You know, this is just like, this is really not right. And so I began to change my attitude. You know, it took, it took time. It took time for me to break through my false thinking and begin to feel it from the core of my being as I do now. You know, that I was born for this and I'm privileged to do it and to work to my limit as he worked to his limit, which his limit was much bigger. But the main thing was, this is not friendship. So I want Master to take care of me, but i just going to pick and choose among, you know, the things like, if you have friends who are like that, you're, you're moving and they come over and they just sit and read a book in your house while you carry the boxes in and out. You know, like, that's not like, are you my friend? Really? But this is, that's exactly what's going on here. And there's a thousand other things. But that's what Master said. He hoped to find, among those seeking enlightenment, people who are also willing to seek enlightenment for others as well as for themselves. Because that's why the Masters incarnate. They have no karma. You know, all of us are here because we had no choice. We were in the outer world and we got just too restless to stay there. Just too restless. You know, it's all pretty, everything is nice, but we have all these vrittis spinning around that just require that we get here again and run this story one more time. We were compelled to incarnate. The masters have no karma. Jesus in the Bible, it says Jesus alone was born without sin. Sin is the word they use in the Bible, but the word is karma. Sin means, sin means wrong understandings and unlearned lessons. You know, because you're not evil. Nobody's evil. Sin is ignorance. Karma is ignorance. We have ignorance that has to be turned into wisdom, and we have to be put into the circumstances that will teach us. We're back to my parents again, aren't we? We have to be put into the circumstances. But the masters are completely free. They finished. It's all done. But out of pure compassion, they just take on the whole story again. I think of it like this. It's like, it's like we're all in prison. I used to visit a friend who was in Folsom. He was deep in Folsom prison, which was really an experience. You know, you, to go really deep into a maximum security prison, and then you end up in this, you know, you end up just sitting in what looks like the multi-purpose room of a, of a high school at little tables with all these other people and all the other people who've come in. And of course, everybody's just sitting around being perfectly relaxed until you notice that there are armed guards around you, which is why everybody's sitting there so perfectly relaxed and you've been searched several times before you get that far. And these poor prisoners have been strip searched coming in and out. You don't see that. 
So there's no, nothing of danger in here. It's a very confined situation. Well, that's what it is to take on a human body and to have to live in this world. And my friend is not guilty of the crime for which he is imprisoned and has been for a long time. And many people in prison are guilty, but let's use him as an example. When an avatar, a fully free soul, incarnates, he has no crime. But he goes all the way into the center of the maximum security prison and he hangs out there with us. And then he teaches us how to escape. You know, not so much physically, but, em but emotionally. But, he, but once he's in there, he's bound by exactly the same conditions that we're bound. That's the irony of it. You know, he can't just walk out because he's a prisoner, but he has no crime. And so the masters come into this world and they're bound by the physical body and by death and by the betrayal of people around them and they feel it. They really do feel it. They also live from a higher plane, but they live all the way into this world. It's not like it doesn't happen. They have a bigger perspective, but it's not like it doesn't happen. And then they teach us how to negotiate the system for no reason except for love of humanity. And of course, if we want to be like them, it serves us to absorb all their qualities. And the most dynamic one of all is, how can I serve? What do you need and how can I help you? And that's what makes us Christ-like. You know, when Jesus said, that which I do and greater things, you know, he could walk on water and rise from the dead and all that was pretty nifty. But what he really did is he changed people's hearts. And that's what we're here to do in all the ways that we can think of. And Master's looking for workers in the field. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. All right. We have finally finished number 308. <laughs> Anything else before we're done? Okay, that's the end. See you next week. Mm-hmm. <laughs>